Hello and welcome to episode 280 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today. So I've got some exciting news as I have launched my live show with Paul, the host of the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast, and Mike, the host of the Murder Mile Podcast. This show, How to Plan the Perfect Murder and Totally Balls It Up, starts with our first date in Glasgow on the 30th of June, with tickets available now at just £12. Please support us if you can, as if we even just break even, we'll then take the show all over the UK and beyond. You can find the link for tickets at all my social media outlets. It's going to be a lot of fun, so please join us if you can in Glasgow, and look out for more dates being released shortly. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Mary Lee, Steve Bothy, and Picture the Scene podcast, which has increased their level of support. Thank you all so much. It is so appreciated. Okay, so we've got no adverts today, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. At number three in the UK music charts, a real love ballad. It was Mr Blobby with Mr Blobby. If you're too young to remember this, <laughs> lucky you, frankly. In the US, at number three was Ace of Bass and All She Wants. And in Australia, the fourth best-selling album of this year was River of Dreams from Billy Joel. In the news this month, the so-called Long Island Railroad Massacre occurred when a passenger whose name I won't even mention murdered six people and injured 19 others on the Long Island Railroad in Nassau County, New York. The MGM Grand Las Vegas Hotel and Casino first opened and at the time was the largest hotel complex in the world. At the Ballon d'Or, Juventus' Italian striker, Roberto Baggio, was named Europe's best football player ahead of Inter forward Dennis Bergkamp and Manchester United striker Eric, hmm, can't read that, Cant- Cantona. Hmm, don't recognise that one. This year, Diana, Princess of Wales, announced her withdrawal from public life. In car news, did I just say that? The Ford Escort was Britain's best-selling car for the second year running, while the new Ford Mondeo and Vauxhall Corsa enjoyed strong sales in their first year on the British market. Goodness gracious, I'm boring myself now. So let's finish with one notable death this month, which was Colombian drugs lord Pablo Escobar, a man responsible for more public violence than Will Smith. Did you get the month and year? It was December 1993. 20-year-old Samo Paul lived in Rowley Regis, just west of Birmingham, with her boyfriend and 15-month-year-old daughter, Viella. The 3rd of December 1993 was just a normal Friday night, when the taxi arrived at 10.30pm to take her to work. On Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights, Samo sold sex on the streets in the Balsall Health District of Birmingham, about four miles from her home, near Edgbaston Cricket Ground. This was an area that had been notorious for street sex work since the 1950s, with Cheddar Road at the centre of this trade. In the 1970s, it was said that around 450 women worked here, 
with many advertising their services in the windows of houses, similar to the Amsterdam Red Light District. And in 1993, although there were less women working, it still attracted men from many miles away. And Samo was popular with the men looking to buy sex. She was just 5 foot 2 inches tall and slender, barely weighing 7 stone, and she had frizzy dark hair. When working, she wore a black lycra dress and carried a small purse containing condoms and small change. Samo was well aware of the dangers of the work, but with no other form of income, she saw it as the only way to make some money. Most of her work came from working in cars, where she charged £25 for sex. That night, after paying the taxi, Sammy made her way to Hallam Street a run-down part of the area with numerous cheap Indian restaurants. That night there were less sex workers on the streets than normal, as the West Midlands Police Vice Squad had picked that evening for what they called a punter initiative operation. This saw policewomen posing as sex workers to scare, or hopefully scare, the endless stream of male curb crawlers. Many of the other women were uncomfortable with the number of police in the area, and opted to take a night off. But Samo didn't make it home the next day. Beside himself with worry, her boyfriend reported her missing the next morning. Detectives initially kept an open mind due to the often chaotic lifestyles led by street sex workers, but when she didn't touch her bank account or her social security benefits, they feared that she'd come to some harm. But finding out just what had happened to Samo after she got out of the taxi proved difficult as nobody seemed to have seen her. Even the vice squad who were around that evening hadn't seen her. So had she actually been working that night or had she gone off somewhere with a friend or even had a secret boyfriend? Detectives contacted all the taxi firms in the area and examined their records from 9pm on the Friday night to the next morning and there was no record of Samo being picked up. This led them to conclude that Samo had either walked away from the area or had been taken away in a car. Was this a friend or a man who had caused her harm? It was strongly beginning to look like the latter. Samo's boyfriend and family suffered a terrible Christmas, just not knowing what had happened, with every call or knock on the door provoking hope and fear in equal measures. But then on the 30th of December, over 30 miles away in Swinford, Leicestershire, their hopes were dashed when a horse rider saw a woman's body lying in an eight-foot ditch. It was Samo's body. She was laying there still in her black dress, although there was no sign of her purse, her shoes or her underwear. Samo, remember, was a mum of one, just 20 years old, and left in this isolated ditch by someone who had shown no respect for her in life or in death. It was a quiet place, with no houses at all nearby, and the ditch ran the length of the road with hedging on each side. The body had been dumped with no attempt at all to hide it. It had been a cold December, which had helped to preserve Samo's body, but it also meant that detectives couldn't be sure if she'd been dumped soon after she went missing at the beginning of the month, 
or whether she had potentially been held somewhere else and dumped later. But the location of where Samo was found was significant. It was just two miles from the junction of the M6 and the M1, but the road used to get to where Samo was left was used by locals to get to an illegal entrance and exit to the M6. So the killer surely had not just stumbled upon this road. They had to live nearby. Detectives were hopeful that maybe the post-mortem would provide more clues. But these hopes were dashed, as the time that Sammo had spent in the water had washed away any potential DNA evidence. The post-mortem showed that Sammo had been strangled, but there were no clear signs of bruising or markings on her body, except for slight internal bruising on her neck. So just who had killed Sammo? The man leading the investigation was Detective Superintendent Unwin. He said, I think she was put in the ditch soon after the murder. The immediate assumption is that she was killed in the car and driven to Swinford. This suggests that the killer knew the area, because this was the first really rural turn-off on the M6. But detectives were struggling with so many questions. What had happened to all her belongings? Had they maybe been taken as trophies? The detective said, All we can do is speculate. We have so little evidence to go on. No car, no forensic, no description. A murder inquiry is a matter of tedious process and hard work and hopefully clicking into a little bit of luck. Maybe true, but not exactly words to fill Samo's friends and family with hope that the killer would soon be caught. I've always thought that Samo knew her killer, continued the detective. Prostitutes sense danger, he said. If she'd thought anything threatening was about to happen, she would have fought. The lack of any defence marks tells me that she may not, after all, have been killed in the back of a car. Samo was naive, but she was wary. It had to be more than a one-off in the back of the car. Why was her underwear removed? The red light area that Friday was busy. There were lots of Indian restaurants. People were coming out of pubs at closing time. You'd expect her to have been seen. Of course, as we know as true crime fans, the detective was right that Samo was likely to have known her killer and her boyfriend was the prime suspect. Detectives also looked at other members of Samo's traditional Indian family and wondered if feeling shamed by her sex work, they killed her. Her dad certainly struggled with the fact that his daughter had been working in sex work. Or maybe the taxi driver who took her to work that night could have been responsible. But in the end, all of these suspects were ruled out. There was, however, one plausible suspect. It's a strange story. A key witness was a woman who had seen a man in a dirty brown Ford Sierra car drive through Swinford at about the time Samo went missing. This car had, she thought, a dead woman in the back seat. And there were other strange factors. It had its headlights on, even though it was daylight. (laughs) Granted, that isn't quite as strange as having a dead body in the back seat. This witness gained credibility as she'd worked as a pathologist. And she described the woman as sitting bolt upright 
with strange marks on her face. The driver of the car was also keen not to be seen and was seemingly disguising himself by pulling a trilby hat over his face. After Samo's body was found, the woman told detectives that she was sure that this was the person she had seen in the back seat of the car. The woman who'd seen the car said she'd been late for work and she drove on in a state of almost disbelief at what she'd seen before reporting it to the police. But before any real progress could be made tracing this suspect, just three months later, the body of another sex worker was found on a roadside verge, under five miles from where Samo had been dumped. Surely there had to be a connection, and locally there were whispers about a potential serial killer being on the loose. Was it connected? The police weren't sure. But just who was this other person found so close to where Samo was left? Let's explore just what happened. It was 8am on March 3rd 1994 on another quiet lane close to the small village of Bitterswell in Leicestershire when a teacher driving down the road spotted something out of the corner of her eye, reversed back and to her horror saw the body of a young woman lying naked on the grass verge of the lane of her head towards the hedgerow. She called the police, but when they got to the scene there was nothing to show her identity, as she did not have any form of ID on her, and she did not match any of their active missing persons profiles. In these pre-internet days it was much more tricky to locate people, and getting any space in the media at this time was difficult, as the story of the Wests in Gloucester had just broken. In the end, after 13 long days, it was a paid advert in the paper with an artist's impression of the five-foot-two woman with blonde long hair that gave detectives the breakthrough. A man called to say that he thought she was Tracy Turner, who was a tenant in his flat in Stafford. And he was correct. The body was 30-year-old Tracy. The man leading the inquiry into her murder, Detective Superintendent Ian Strip, said, It seems incredible that in this day and age, somebody can go missing for 13 days and not be reported. But when we discovered more about Tracy, we understood why. She was an introvert mainly because she was virtually deaf. She had problems making friends. The few we did find hadn't seen her for quite some time and we found it difficult to find anyone close to her. There would be gaps in her life. It transpired that Tracy had often hitchhiked, taking lifts from cars and lorries, and she often paid for these journeys with sex. The detective said, Her life was not just about prostitution. It was about tripping around in lorries. She travelled around the country as a hobby, almost a way of life. Tracy liked to go with lorry drivers because she felt safer with them, but she would take other lifts too. We know she travelled all over Britain, and she may have travelled to Ireland and the continent, but we never found a driver who admitted giving her a lift. It is often against freight company rules to give lifts. If anyone does come forward, he said, we will deal with their information in total confidence. We really do need every bit of help we can get. Detectives managed to piece together Tracy's last movements. She withdrew £5 from a building society account and by 10.40pm 
she had made her way to the M6 motorway to search for a lift at Birmingham North Service Station. It was only a few minutes from Tracy's flat in Stafford, but it was unclear how Tracy had got there. Had she walked, got a taxi, got a lift? The last time that Tracy was definitely seen alive was at 12.41am, standing on the southern slip road of the M6. Detectives managed to trace many of the drivers who were at the motorway services that evening through their card payments for petrol. Although back then lots more people still used cash, and people back then could actually afford to put petrol in their cars. Detectives continued to appeal for more sightings of Tracy, who when she was killed was wearing a dark green anorak and charcoal grey leggings. But she could have changed into other clothes, as she was always prepared for these trips with toiletries and spare clothing tucked into her bag. As was said before, it was like a lifestyle choice for her. And there were a number of sightings of Tracy, as according to one of the detectives, Tracy was distinctive. He said, she was a very noticeable girl. Her mass of light blonde hair and her size made her look a very big, powerful girl. Even though it was pitch black, you could not have failed to notice her. And perhaps as one couple did, think she was asking for trouble. We believe that by 1am, she had gone. Just as an aside, it's really strange these uh, detectives, some of their quotes. This one here is obsessed with Tracy's weight. And some of their terminology is really old-fashioned. But I guess it was of the day. And it was the following morning when Tracy's body was found, about 45 minutes from the motorway service station. Again, like Samo, there had been no attempt to conceal the body in any way. It looked like a car had just pulled in and pushed the body out to the floor. There was no sign of Tracy's bag containing any of her gear, and to this day this has never been found. Now, being a true crime fan, I know what you're thinking. Tire tracks. But none were found. And the reasons for this was explained again by the lead detective who said, Tracy was too heavy to be carried easily, so someone would have to stop in their vehicle and dump her. We don't know how long she was there. There were vehicles going to the bungalow and farm buildings at the end of the lane that morning, but it was very overcast. If drivers were concentrating on the road, they may have missed her. Even though she was naked, we expected to find some pieces of her clothing near the scene, but we found none, nor the hearing aid she wore. The murderer could have kept them as a trophy, or he could have known they were incriminating and taken them away to destroy them. Just like Samo, the post-mortem suggested that Tracy had been strangled, possibly with the cable of her hearing aid. She'd been strangled from behind and there were scratch marks on her cheek, which experts believe could have been due to Tracy trying to remove whatever was used to strangle her, or maybe to try to move her killer's hands from her face. It must have been a terrifying death, mustn't it? She was aware of what was happening. The lead detective said, If Tracy had been confronted from the front, she would have put up a fight and there would be defence marks. It's highly likely that Tracy was killed elsewhere because the attack would have been seen in the lane where she was found. It's surprising how many people are around early in the morning. With no significant leads coming their way, Detectives spent more time at other service stations across the UK, especially on the M1 and M6, trying to find out more about Tracy. 
And the story was the same wherever they went, which was that plenty of people recognised Tracy by sight, but few had spoken to her or knew her name. They also found that Tracy had spent a lot of time in London and sold sex on the streets of King's Cross, where she had picked up a number of convictions. But again, whereas other sex workers recognised her, none had spoken to her or knew anything else about her. It seemed that Tracy had lived quite a sad and lonely life, with only one lorry driver telling police that Tracy had told him about a boyfriend called Gareth or Gary, but with no further details he was never tracked down. Detectives became increasingly frustrated that a number of people weren't coming forward, either as they were concerned that their partner would find out they had sex with Tracy, or as some companies specified that their employees weren't allowed to pick up passengers, and they feared they'd get in trouble. So they appealed for more and more people to come forward, assuring them of confidentiality. The detective said, I've no doubt that the murderer will be caught eventually. I also believe that somebody out there knows something that they're not telling us, maybe out of fear, maybe out of loyalty. We appeal for that person to come forward. Tracy was a sad and lonely girl. She didn't deserve to die like that. Imagine her fear at the moment of her death, alone in the dark in the middle of nowhere with an evil person. I want to find out who that person was, not only for Tracy, but also for her mum and dad. Detectives investigating the two murders worked closely together, but they remained unclear whether the two cases were linked. But whether they were or not, over the next few years, the number of people working on both murder cases reduced as new priorities emerged, and the attacks on street sex workers continued. Indeed, detectives believed that one attack in the same part of Birmingham, where Samo had been working on the night she disappeared, was almost certainly the same man who had killed Samo. Let me quote from a Guardian newspaper article that explains what happened. Now the mother of five children, she was working alone on a wet March night in the Balsall Health area. At 10pm she was approached by a man who offered her £40 for sex. He was her seventh customer that night. He drove me in a tan maestro for a few miles down the road and we stopped in the dark, unlit car park of Mosley Hall Hospital. His accent was soft, reassuring. Cassette tapes and litter were strewn about the car floor. A tartan blanket was stretched across the back seat. The man went to the back of the car, something she was accustomed to, as many businessmen kept their money in their briefcase in the boot. He got back in the car and put his left arm around her neck and put a standing knife to her neck. He told me to give him my purse and house keys and to take my clothes off. I was petrified and kept telling him not to kill me that I was three months pregnant. Something in him must have changed at the mention of a baby as he then told me to get out and threw my clothes after me. The woman ran all the way to the local police station and made a full statement. She admits her escape was down to luck. Her abiding impression of the man with the blade to her throat was that he'd been in that situation before. But nobody was charged with the murders of Samo or Tracy and their stories, except for their family and friends, dropped further down the public consciousness as other cases came 
and went. Then almost four years later, in December 1997, a 30-year-old man called Alan Height was arrested at the scene of a rape in Western Supermare near Bristol. His victim had been staying at the same hostel as him and when she refused to have sex with him, he brutally raped her. The terrified woman managed to escape and went immediately to the police, who arrested Kite at the scene just two hours later as he was leaving the hostel. He was charged and found guilty at Bristol County Court and sentenced to eight years in jail. A routine sample was taken from Kite in March 1998, and it came back showing a match for DNA found on Tracy Turner's body. Detectives interviewed him about the murders of Samo and Tracy without telling him they had the DNA. He told them he didn't use sex workers, which Detective knew was a lie. And he also revealed he'd owned a brown Ford Sierra car, the same type that had been seen by the witness who believed she'd seen the body of Samo bolt upright in this car. Detectives believed they had their man and they charged Alan Kite with the murders of Samo and Tracy. They'd finally found their killer. But the fear was just how many more victims could have suffered at the hands of the man later labelled the Midlands Ripper. And next week in the concluding part of our story, we'll look much more at other victims and just what had turned Alan Kite into a man capable of such terrible, terrible acts. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspects of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group where almost 80,000 of us talk true crime 24-7. Just head to Facebook and search the UK True Crime. And to support this show, please do join my community at Patreon. It's the place to be for bonus episodes and other exclusive content, including the chance to win backstage tickets to my forthcoming live shows and any annual membership for as little as £17. I'll send you a signed copy of my book about Angus Sinclair gone fishing. So just head over to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. You know it makes sense. So that's all for me for another week. So join me again on Tuesday for the concluding part of this story. And until then, despite all the others, I keep telling you, they aren't like you and me. We both know that, don't we? Please do stay classy. Cheerio for now.